Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the 91st episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Adam. Today we've got Brad Payton on. He's directed a ton of Hollywood movies that you've heard of before. So he directed Cats and Dogs to Journey to San Andreas. He has a Netflix show called Frontier. He has San Andreas 2 coming out in a while. It's announced, at least. And, and then he just I- finished directing Rampage based on the video game. He's also doing Journey 3. I mean, the guy's doing every giant movie. His first movie was an $80 million film. Yeah. Uh, learn, learn what it takes to direct like highly CG-heavy filmmaking. We really dig in deep on how he approaches pre-visualization, CGI, and working with actors. It's a great conversation. We actually broke it up into two parts, so stay tuned for the finale of it. We'll dig in and talk to Brad Payton in just a minute. But before we do that, Oren, I'm really, really dying to know. What have you been working on lately? Well, believe it or not, our regular viewers know that I've been pitching this show, Warigami, for months and months and months and traveled around. And anyway, we finally freaking started the writer's room this week. Hey, congrats, man. Thanks. So it's been really fun. Today's only day two, but um, there's like basically the three of us, the creators and another writer and a writer's assistant. We're starting a little small for the first week just to kind of break out We have three assignments, the themes, the character arcs, and the world. And it's stuff that we all kind of know, but now we actually have to be definitive about. You know, we've always had these ideas like, oh, yeah, and then these two characters meet, and then this thing happens, but their parents died or whatever. And But now we have to figure out how their parents died and why and when and how do they meet and all that stuff. And so we've been getting homework every night. Uh, So the very first night's homework that was to bring in a a cool action scene that you really like and to explain why you like it. Like we'd play it in front of the the room and we talk about what we like about it. So I brought, I brought in two scenes. I brought the record throwing scene from Shaun of the Dead, just because it's such like a fun improvisational scene. It's where the characters in Shaun of the Dead learn how to fight zombies and they are have, are throwing records at them, but they're like looking through their record collection to make sure they're only like throwing the shitty records at them. Um, and then I had a scene from Mad Max where Max fights Furiosa 
and he's chained up to a passed out guy, the, the other character that he's with. And just the choreography of that scene and who's on top, it, it's like so dynamic and so interesting and it's just a great fight scene. So I brought those two scenes in. We talked about them. They, they, the other people brought in scenes and it was really fun. Um, and then our next assignment was to just kind of pitch our own version of the backstory for all the characters so that's what we did last night and tonight's assignment, which I'll have to write after we finish recording, is we each got assigned a character to write like a journal entry for. Mm-hmm. Just something when I was at Disney, we would like, I mean, this will show you how long ago this was, but we would make like MySpace profiles for each character. <laughs> um, that's real You cute. know, what music they like, what sure. their favorite movies are, those things. I can't wait to learn who your character's top eight friends are, though. <laughs> yeah, well, Tom is number one, Tom from MySpace. That might mean something to someone listening to this. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Shout so it's, out to Tom. it's been fun. You know, we haven't really cracked the story and we will. What I like about our room specifically is like people will adamantly pitch ideas and then someone else will be like, oh, but what if it was this totally different thing instead? I feel like we're really open to like saying like, oh, yeah, that is better. It's been it's been good so far. I'm. We're moving really slowly, so I hope we have stuff yeah. done. How much longer are you guys uh, in the room for? So we have three weeks to get our first season outline done. Mm, okay. Uh, and so the first week we're working on theme, world, and arcs. Yeah, and then and you start breaking next week? Yeah, next week we'll do the first half of the season, and then the following week the second half, which obviously it does, it's not quite that uh, organized, but that's what we're responsible to show New Form, the production company at the end of each week. So it's cool. Um, what about you? What have you been sleeping on lately? Oh boy. So, uh, yeah, nice segue there, Oren. I, I did a real weird one. Um, this last week I did, (laughs) basically I did a, um, a branded spot for, um, a sleep machine. The, uh, as part of the deliverables, sometimes companies will have like these real out of the box, crazy ideas and you know, typically you hear like, oh, sure, sure, we really want to do something crazy and weird and all this stuff. And by the time it gets to me, it's a 30-second spot where people say the name of the brand over and over again, and maybe I get a joke or two in. So finally, actually, this is one of those crazy cases where the the crazy out-of-the-box idea uh, we ended up actually doing. Um, so we did a four-hour long live-to-tape live to tape thing that I probably shouldn't explain too much further, but we'll talk about later. Uh, once it's released, probably early next year, but of like a long kind of endurance test, basically, of four hours live to tape. So like a sporting event, basically. And it was super fun, super weird, crazy, improv heavy. But so it was it was really fun um, and kind of everything worked. It took a crazy long time to get things set up and get things right. But once we were shooting, we were in it and, you know, um, we got it there. It was wild. Cool, man. Yeah, I saw some of the footage because Sawhorse was the production company and I was there the other day noodling around. That's Yeah, it looks really great. It looks like a, like a, like sporting, a sporting event, event. except yeah. it's a... Can we say that? Well, that's the thing I was not saying. Why? That's the whole hook. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it hasn't been announced yet. Oh, well, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see how people react to it. Yeah, it'll, it'll be super exciting. Cool. So before we talk to Brad, I just want to really encourage our listeners to leave us an iTunes review. It really helps us a ton more than you guys can imagine. I know we harp on it a lot. I personally have never left an iTunes review of anything. Have you? I don't think I have. So we are giant hypocrites, but let's right now let's 
pledge that we will each go leave an iTunes review somewhere. I solemnly to pledge. To not be hypocrites. Yeah, so we will we will leave our own reviews <laughs> just to prove that it's doable. But if you guys could please just let us know, just say, hey, uh, great shipping item as promised, or, you know, we hate this podcast, or check out my short film. All are totally fine. Yeah, um, but uh, and much appreciated. Yeah, so the more the more reviews just kind of helps us be, get found by other people. Hey, one quick note before we get started with Brad, we have our live show coming up in Culver City, January tenth. Just shoot it live. We're gonna have a ton of great guests, witty banter, all the fun that you come to expect, and then also a Q and A afterwards, and then a mixer where you can hang out, have a little bit of food, have a little bit of drink, and connect with the Just Shoot It community. It's going to be a great time. We can't wait to see you all. So if you're in the greater Los Angeles area, January 10th in Culver City, if you go to justshootitpod.com slash live show, you can get more information. We do have a limited number of seats, but the tickets are free. So check out justshootitpod.com slash live show to learn more. See you then. Thanks, everyone. Bye. So, Brad. Yes. We're here. Thanks for coming to talk to us. Thanks, man. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So you have directed a few movies. Yep. You did San Andreas. I did. I watched it last night. Sweet. Me too. Did you really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Do you watch go your... to bed every night? He's like, yeah, just... <laughs> I guess he, guess he wants to impress himself right <laughs> sure. now. Do you watch your own movies like once they're out? No, uh, not really. I mean... Like it's on TBS. You're flipping so, through channels. You know what? I, this is it's funny. I literally, San Andreas was on some like TNT or something. Sure. And I used to watch TNT and be like, man, I got, I can't wait to make a movie that plays on TNT. You know, like they have like those uh, like national treasure movies. I'm like, man, those guys yeah. must make so much money. Their <laughs> movies are on checks, TNT. Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the other day I was like flipping through it and I was like, San Andreas. And I recorded it. <laughs> Never watched it. But I was just like, oh my God, like I get, I get to record my own movie on TNT. I mean, that is cool, right? I don't know why it's cool to me, but it's definitely like, it's sort of a reflective moment mm-hmm. because on a, so many levels, I, st- I still feel like a fan. Like, I don't sure. feel like the Hollywood, like I'm a Hollywood director and I don't feel that way a lot of times. So when I have those moments, I, I record it, but like, I will never watch that. Right. I haven't watched San Andreas since I saw the premiere. The thing with the movies that I make is that I watch them like 4,000 times trying to finish them. Because of all the visual effects and all that stuff, it's not like I get to like shoot it, cut it, put some music on it, and be like, "All right, here we go." So I have to watch my movies. Like I'm not joking. Like I've seen Rampage like I don't know 150 times right now. Do you and, think you've seen it more than someone making like a drama or a comedy? I has seen their movie. It. Oh yeah, I have to. There's no choice. I have to like iteration upon iteration upon iteration. Like like for example today i was talking to bob to who's my editor and bob just came off of this little movie called uh star wars mm-hmm. the last jedi he edited that and uh well, he's done now the last jedi there can't be more that's right so, so. it's over yeah. story guys you yeah. screwed this one up yeah um but you know he was like we we're talking about literally we we're talking about screens inside of shots inside or inside of rampage and there is a 150 shots of monitors that we have to comp with 240 elements that we have to build Right. That's just, I'm, we're talking with screens in the background of scenes. Like, I, ha- I can't, like, if you're shooting a rom-com, you're not going to do that. Why would you ever spend the money on that stuff, you know? You're going to, like, fix, I don't know, Matthew McConaughey's suits or something, you know? Right. Like, yeah, I was wondering last night when I was watching uh, San Andreas, like, 
if there's a shot, like an overhead shot of like a huge dust cloud and a helicopter and like a building, like in the bottom right corner, yeah. like how anal are you about a shot like that? Do you go in there and you're like, can we just move the helicopter to the left? Like C- crazy anal, but all like, of it, all of it. Like it's at the end of the day, it's all composition. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I'm shooting a tabletop of a can or I'm shooting a helicopter in the middle of an intersection, it's all composite. You know, it's the same thing, really, except mine, <laughs> one costs way more money um, <laughs> right. and is a little more violent. But, um, you know, it's, it com- for me, it comes down to, like, realism, composition, impact within the cuts. So, like, to go from, like, a close-up of Dwayne to this high-wide of something like that, you're designing all that stuff to get some sort of emotional impact. So you're anal about all of it. And, and with visual effects in particular, I'm pretty strict. Like I shoot plates for everything. So like people will go like, Oh, it's a big VFX shot. But like that shot that you're talking about, there's a plate that's underneath that shot of that real location that we then add a destruction to. And a lot of times what will happen is it'll become like an 80%, they'll call it like an 80% digital shot where they rebuild all the buildings. But the reason it looks good is because I shot the shot and then I can A-B it with the real thing and the VFX company can A-B it with the real thing. Like on Rampage, we're having this thing now where I'm getting really uh, um, perturbed by fake-looking forests. And mm-hmm. so I've like – and I've worked with the same VFX guy for a while, this guy named Colin Strauss who actually is a director. He did like a Skyline and a Alien versus Predator Requiem. Oh, and I'll wow. uh, um, like I'll be like, Colin – you're using one of those goddamn forest plates. I'm not, I don't want to see bullshit for, you know, cause I like, cause you see it and you're like, that's not real. It doesn't feel real. I'm being taken out of this thing and I don't want to be taken out. And so you, be, you're anal about all of that stuff, you know, like, trust me, I, I wish there was a like, do it awesome button that you could press and all the VFX would be amazing, but it is the complete and total opposite. We have like hundreds of iterations of shots. And do you, so you're that anal about like the, the leaves in the forest. Do you also... Do you ever use VFX like on a performance? Like you're like, oh, I wish he was just smiling a little bit more. I mean, you were already in this pipeline of VFX. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think the closest thing that you'll hear of with that is touch-ups for people. Like you'll hear like a, like a blemish or a sure. scar or, or something. Sometimes. But like Fincher yeah. will or, or like split tears. screen. People will add tears sometimes as well. Right? Yeah, I've yeah. done that. Yeah, I've, done, oh, yeah, I've tears. time. Well, tears for continuity is the thing I had a problem with. Like the performance was there, but then I wanted to cut over to someone else, mm-hmm. and there was no tier and so i've had to add continuity tier you know <laughs> sure um fincher uses split screens yeah here's a secret everybody uses split screens <laughs> sure everybody uses them they're like there's there are hundreds in 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 san andreas you just won't know because that's where we're at with editing there's like nothing is sacred visually you know like you can do so much it's a little scary, actually. I thought I was a genius when I directed. I was like, man, the continuity is amazing. Because, like, I was, I'm, you know, super detailed and super anal about all the, you know, when someone reaches here, I want to be on this shot, so I need to be in the over, you know. Like, I, I plan all of that stuff. And I thought, I was like, wow, I nailed it. And then, you know, Bob, my editor, was just like, yeah, no, that's a split. Oh, yeah, that's a split there. And you're like, what? Oh, so just in terms of timing, so your editor is like, partially directing the performance as well with those split screens yeah it's not the emotion stuff it's more of the continuity direction mm-hmm. you know they're 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 trying to harness this the pacing and the continuity right. of performance more than they're really doing performance right but, you guys you know, have picked the take you like and then he's crafting something around absolutely it, absolutely yeah. and sometimes you'll get like 
The closest thing to actually crafting performance, I would say, is ADR, which is like you can you can notch up and down performance substantially. Now, like honestly, in order to redo someone's performance through an entire movie, like that's an insane amount of time and work, and you would never really do that with ADR. Yeah, though I, you know, I hear ADR when I go to movies. I don't know if yeah. you guys. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Even yeah. Law and Order, you're like, eh, why are we on her back for the most important line of the scene? <laughs> totally. I, I, I mean, with like big movies, there even Wonder Woman. Um, there's like all this exposition when they're riding the horses, and we're just on their back the whole time. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's a lot, that, and and I have a. Since I was like a little kid, I could hear the I could you know I used to just call them fake lines. I could hear like the fake lines. I could hear like what the why are they talking about how many hours are left on this shot you know like but it was the quality of the record and so i have like a really strong aversion to adr because it takes me out just for myself so in my own films i try to like be really really strict with it and and you know talk to the mixers and be like you're only using adr if you absolutely have to and i have like a really you know i have a really good editing team and so i'm always just like why are we using that why did we adr that and a lot of times it'll be a safety net, you know, for, right. for like, if there's or I bumps. feel like it's those guys that are need to do the, like, the separate mixes for international, mm-hmm. right? They need the dialogue separated from TV the sound. TV mix, we do that for swear words, like, even, like, shit. You can't say shit on television, so you'll get, like, we'll bring in, like, Je- Jeffrey had to come in and do shoot for, you know, there's, like, 50 shits in Rampage, and he had to do shoot for 50 times or whatever. Have you uh, ever used sound-alikes, like, the rock sound-alike or a... You know. No, I would, you know, especially for like um, uh, previews or something like that, because the, the, the problem with Which like, that's a Canadian for trailers, right? No, preview for like testing the movie. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I grew but up it is calling Canadian them, for tra- I call it a, called them previews when I was a kid as well. Oh, yeah, really? like the trailers? trailers in California. Yeah, yeah. 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 But um, no, I mean, like for testing the movie, because the thing is, is like you go to test the movie and Dwayne's so busy. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's so hard and like. You might have a hundred ADR lines, and some of them are just like bumps and noise. On my movies, this tends like fans. There's just fans <laughs> for wind and dust, and like you know. Right. So every single one of his lines is like nee, in sure. the background. And you're like, oh my god, please God. So we like the sooner you get them in, the more you can just clean the movie out and kind of like be like, mm-hmm. okay, this is done. Like we're done here. Um, but I would use a sound like if I could, but. You know, right? He's busy. No one really sounds like The Rock, sure. and you know. I imagine there's probably contractual things as well, right? Well, like, ultimately, yeah. like to finish the movie, there is. Yeah. You can't really like. I, I mean, maybe if he said, "Yeah, it's okay," but you wouldn't. I wouldn't want that because right. you're getting what he does sure. is the special, the special quality, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, there is none. Trust yeah. me, we've looked. I think I told. Did we talk about it last time? I have a friend that edit, edits like big movie trailers, and they always use soundalikes because they. He'll say like you. You won't believe how many movies don't have one line in the movie that tells you what the movie's about. Right. And they they need that line. So they use like the guy that sounds like Eddie Murphy, you know, and the guy that sounds like We just get whoever. Dwayne'll do it. Like he'll he'll talk into his phone and send it to us for, oh, cool. for for doing the trailer, you know, and then we'll go, Okay, great. Well, if he's usually see the thing is he works so much, he's usually on set. Right. So we just get the sound recorders yeah, of yeah. that movie to get the lines for us and then they send it over to, to WB and they put it in. But Yeah. I oh. want to go back to the VFX stuff for just a quick second because I want to learn a little bit more about how you note things. Yeah. Right? Like, so are you, when you're, you say you're watching these, this movie like so many times, are you in a screening room? Yeah. And then, okay, so like you, you realize, oh, I want to 
You want you me to, to walk something. you through my average day right now in this well, moment? Well, actually, I, I, I specifically really, with noting, I want to know, like, are you there with a laser pointer? Are you walking over to a monitor? Like, how do you do it? Because I know how to do it on, like, my over my buddy's shoulder, yeah. like, in a post house. Okay. But, like, yeah. on a feature like this. It's probably not that different. Yeah. Um, so, like, on the movie right now where I'm at, every day is one of two things. Music, this is a rampage. This is a rampage, yeah. Music Which is based or, on the video game. Based on the video game, yeah. Um, it's either music or visual effects at this point. I will usually spend the mornings with my composer, um, who I've done a bunch of movies with, so it's great. He has a pool, and it's amazing. Uh, and then I'll go in the afternoon, and I'll go into the doldrums of visual effects. No, I'm kidding. I, we go into a screening room that we have on the Warner Brothers lot that's just for us, just for the movie. And um, they have up on all their walls a little snapshot of every single shot that, that digitally is going to be touched. And right now it's like... 1400 shots or something like that and i go in ahead of everybody uh this is this isn't normal but what i do is i go in ahead of everybody and i watch a string out i just watch every single shot we're going to talk about today just played back to back to back so i'll sit there by myself with one of the vfx editors he's just there to hit pause play and if there's and every single the way you can watch the shot is you can either put the mat on it and just see it like it's in the movie or you can pull the mat off and you can see all of the information, the lenses, the the ID numbers, all that stuff. So a lot of times I'll be asked, and he can see all of it back there. He has a couple monitors. He's behind me and there's like a couple couches and then a desk. And at the desk is the editor who's running the machine, a couple of VFX assistants. And then on the couches are usually me, um, my two editors, sometimes a VFX producer when he wants to cry about how much money we're spending, mm-hmm. and then VFX supervisor Colin. And I go through before they come into the room and I watch everything. And that's really for me, um, I'm a very, very heavy prepper. Like I, like I was saying about having the continuity and, you know, <laughs> thinking I had done such a great job, but really I hadn't and Bob had saved my life. But um, I, I really kind of like prep everything. And it's to avoid, for me, being creative in pressure situations is about prep. Mm-hmm. I, I need to de-stress every situation so that I can think freely. And I go in and look at everything, and I'm really just flagging issues that I can see coming. This shot's not going to work, this thing. Because what happens is... You Wait, have, but you're not watching them how they are in the edit? You're just watching them on their own? Just on their own. But I've seen the movie so much. And when we do review... So then when they do come in, we actually review the shot now in context. Mm-hmm. They've been. I've asked for a string out for me. And that's simply because I don't have any time in my day. So I just need to see it as fast as I can see it. So I'll watch it and say you know, 150 shots. That could be 22 minutes of footage. So I'm just watching 22 minutes of raw shots. Now, when they come in the room, they're going to, no sound. No. When they come in the room, they'll hit play on the scene and they'll be, and someone, one of the assistants will be, okay, it's FS 1345. And you're watching and they'll go this one because some shots are fast and some shots are, you're trying to just watch, you know? And I'm watching, and then once we see it through, I'll, and they'll call up, okay, blocking approval on the animation of this, da 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 da. And then you'll watch it, and I'll go, okay, am I looking for facial expression as well as physical expression? Right. It depends on what where you're at in the process. And they'll kind of walk you through. And we're working with Weta, which is Peter Jackson's company, and um, they're very, very high caliber. So it's interesting because <laughs> even though I'll be like, all right, on frame 1011, I want George to hit this car. And then when he gets to frame 14, five, 14, whatever, he jumps over this fence, right? That's not real. He doesn't jump over a fence, but he does hit a car. But so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where they'll send it back. And sometimes it'll be nothing like that. But then they'll give this explanation like, 
you know, we thought that the with the camera speed and blah blah blah, this might work better. And so they're they're it's they're yeah they're being super creative and they're giving rationale. And I actually wasn't used to that because I've never worked with Weta before. They're coming to the table like I know from animation, like artists, like really kind of like pushing ideas. And sometimes I just want to go in there and see this stuff before I sit down in a room with five very opinionated people who've made 20 times more films than me to tell me what they like. Well, I want to know what I like. Mm -hmm. And so I have to sit there and kind of watch it and think about it, especially as I'm getting new stuff thrown at me. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that something that you've learned over time? Like in the beginning, you would kind of like be like, well, this guy's made 20 films, so... He must be right. And this guy's telling me it's way cheaper to do no, this. No, it's, I'm not. No, I've never been like that. I've been um, I've been stubborn my entire life. Um, it's just more of a social awkwardness for me. I don't like the I don't like the normal human behavior that comes with people who have opinions. I, I don't mind opinions. It's just all of the other things that come with it that I don't that I find uncomfortable. You know, like someone has to feel like they're proving something or you know, all the ego I rationalize their yeah, job. I have, I don't really have any of that hang up. I, I, I really don't like, I don't care. Like I, I'm like, where's the finish line? How do we make it awesome? Period. And the only hang up I have is that sometimes it takes me longer to digest other people's ideas than my own. And I'm super aware of that. So I go in ahead of time, you know, like I I've adjusted all my behavior to factor into how I operate, you know? And, you know, at the end of the day, I think people who care about making films, they put everything second to the film. And, like, to me, that's the sign of a good filmmaker is that everything is second. Everything. Including your ego or your hang-ups or your... Or my health or anything, you know? Like, you end up, like, (laughs) everything goes out the window except for the movie, and you... It's almost like an uncontrollable thing. You just... I, I never think about this until now that you're making me think about it. But like, you know, I don't ever like really. Your therapist asks. Yeah. yeah, exactly. What is wrong yeah, today? Sure. Well, this is movie. this is the beginning of your indie movie, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Wait, so I want to. I'm like dying to know just like how you approach making a shot list. But I but I think for the sake of our listeners, if we can just rewind again, I think a large portion of our audience is like your job is their dream job, and they would love to know how you got here. I Did, think it's safe to say 100% of our audience. <laughs> like I would, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind directing. <laughs> well, I, I'd love to direct like Marvel movies, but I kind of feel like that's probably something that you've been in consideration for. I'm going to go to Marvel next week. Oh, hey. cool. Yeah. Well, we'll put in a good word for you. I, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. please do. Yeah. Yeah, um, but so how, so did you, I mean, there's like the Ryan Coogler way, you know, you make Fruitvale Station, then you make, yeah. uh, you write a movie for, Sylvester Stallone, and then you get to make, you know, Black Panther. Uh, and I think Fruitvale Station like a Sundance film, maybe. Um, there's like the, the uh, Wes Ball who made Maze Runner, you know, who made just an amazing short film. Um, what, so what's your path? How did you get here? Um, I made a short film that did really well in Canada at a film school called the CFC. And was it like a VFX driven short film? No, or action not at all. No, it was, um, it was called Evelyn, the Cutest Evil Dead Girl. And it was about a little dead girl that tried to kill herself back to life in order to make friends. So it was like a very kind of Tim Burton-y, dark comedy. And I built it all out of cardboard and wood. Like Like stop motion. 
No, I used real people, but made them act like they were animated. Wait, so like those Duracell commercials back in the day where the people wore foam costumes? No, it was real people, but they were dressed in like very simple, like Fisher Price costumes. And they walked around and acted like they were animated. And they were grown women acting as little kids. And I built the sets really big. Like yeah. forced perspective kind the of. The whole thing was forced perspective. The entire thing. And the entire thing was like a pop-up book. Like it was literally like cardboard, literally cardboard and wood. It was my, it was my thesis film at the CFC and, um, Tom Hanks saw it and, um, David Heyman who produced, uh, Harry Potter saw it and David. And how did they see it? It went into the festival circuit and, uh, it did really well. It was probably more commercial than most, you know, films on the f- <laughs> festival circuit. Yeah. And David was a really kind and flew me to New York, which, you know, I was like a super poor student. And uh, Tom Hanks and Playtone, I think, flew me to L.A. So those are two totally separate meetings. Yeah, yeah, separate things. And But they happened within like the same two weeks, which to me was... Did you just, premiere at like Toronto Film Festival or something um, big like I that? I probably, yeah, I probably did actually at Toronto. And then, but I mean, I went around the world with it. I got to travel the world and then... And then basically, as a Canadian independent filmmaker, um, I had zero expectations about being a Hollywood filmmaker. I, it's just not, it's not really in the cards for anybody. At least you don't think it is, you know. To the point when I sold a script in Hollywood and I told friends of mine in Toronto, they thought I was lying. <laughs> they were like literally calling bullshit on me. And I was like, no, man, I, I did. I sold the script to Sony. And they're like, no, you didn't. And I was like, no, I did. <laughs> like, no one would believe me. And um, it's just because no one was really doing it, you know. Um, but I, I basically, ha- growing up there where it's not a Hollywood system, so there's no real, like, I'm going to be a writer and the studio's going to hire me and then a director's going to come on. You have to write for yourself if you want to be a director. That's why there's, a, like, the Adam McGoyans exist, you know, these guys that direct and write their own stuff because that is what the system is there. So... I came in as a writer-director, and then I could only get writing jobs. Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing for Universal. I wrote an animated film for Tom Hanks' company. Uh, I sold a script to Sony the year after. Um, and how you just learned I, to write from writing your own stuff and yeah. writing at school. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm like the classic guy. Like, I, I, I got a scholarship to go to university. It wasn't a big scholarship, but I got out of my small town which was like 9,000 people in Newfoundland, which is a super small province in Canada. And um, I stopped going to class after like two months because I was just like, this is... Right, like I might as well shoot it instead of... I I, like, you know, I I had this thing where I realized, like, because I didn't grow up with money. So I was like, I'd saved all my money to go to university and then I'd gotten there and, you know, for some people, like $10,000 isn't much money. And for me, it was everything... That I had, right, and I was in a very literal sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. in a total literal sense. And um, you know, I was sitting there going, "Oh my god, I'm spending all the money I've ever saved after having two jobs all through high school." You know, and then I was like, I had this like moment where I realized I have to make the decision. I, w- I was lucky because there was no, in a way, I was lucky because there was no opportunity for a B plan. There was no like backup plan, and there was never a backup plan. Out of so many, for so many reasons, I literally asked myself this question, like, what could you do at 25, 35, 45, 55, 65 that would make you happy? And the only answer I could come up with was filmmaker. And so 
I was like, if that's the truth, and it felt like the truth at the time, like inside, I was like, then that is what I have to attempt to do. And so then I dropped out of university, told my parents what I was doing. They were like ready to murder me. And um, I said, just give me five years. Give me five years to become a filmmaker. And if it doesn't work in five years, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go back to university, whatever you want me to do. You know, and they they kind of were like, well, you should take classes. And I was like, okay, I'll try to get into the film school in Canada. I'm not going to say the film school. I went there. I got in. After two months, I asked for my money back because it was bullshit. And I was like, this is no good. You're not teaching me how to make films. Every time I have an idea on how to make a film, you tell me, no, this is an exercise about whatever the fuck, jump cuts. Or, you know, like, <laughs> right. why can't I do a film that's narrative and also about jump yeah. cuts? No, yeah. we're not doing narrative I've films. I've noticed Brad has very few jump cuts. Yes, loves, I loves never continuity. Jump cuts. I'm still angry at that professor. <laughs> um, but so it was just, uh, uh, I then just had to figure it out on my own because no one was... No system was supportive of someone who knew what they wanted to do and had their own impatience and their own timeline in their mind. And remember, like, I'm like every other, most likely, I'm like every other successful filmmaker that you guys have ever talked to. Like, I knew Spielberg had made his first movie when he was 25. I know all the facts that everyone else knows because I read all those books when I was 17. I'm now 19 and I'm, or 18 and I'm at this film school and they're telling me to learn about fucking sound waves. And I'm like, give me my money back, man. Like, I don't want to learn about sound waves. I want to go make a film, you know? And like, I've read all this other crap that you're trying to teach me. Like, I did that on my own. So I just got into a place in this mindset where it was like, I'm going to go figure this stuff out. I'm, there's no better proof than to go do it. You know, I asked a, a famous filmmaker to, when I was really young. To just shoot it, even? To just shoot it. <laughs> hey! Um, like, I asked a famous filmmaker when I was young. I was like, how do you become a director? And he says, you go direct. Right. And I was like, okay then. You which know. is a lot harder than, like, you know, writers say to be a writer, you have to write, which is pretty easy to do on your own. That's but true. Direct, <laughs> but direct takes know, a little more mani- manipulating But people. it's true. But you will find a way. It's like everything else, right? Like you'll figure it out, like because you have to figure it out, you know. So, um, the the and then the short answer to this question is really like I, f- I dropped out of a bunch of film schools, made a short film that got me into a specialty film school called the CFC, where I made this short film that people in Hollywood saw. Then I went through the whole meet agents, meet lawyers, all that stuff, and then I just started writing because I couldn't get a job as a director. And then, right. So even after you met Tom Hanks and the producer of Harry Potter, you still nobody hired you to direct. No, what was interesting is that um, and I'm not sure I've told anyone the story, but um, they talked to me about Harry Potter and I was like, hell yeah. no. <laughs> and, and Wait, they, was this before the first Harry Potter? Yeah. Oh, they flew me to Manhattan and I had lunch with them to talk about Harry Potter. And I was like, I was so not ready. And I sure. knew yeah, I wasn't yeah. ready. I was like, I'm not fucking Harry Potter up. There's not a chance I'm directing it. Now, he didn't offer me. Have you read the book? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was like, you know, it was a sensation or whatever. And and I'm not saying he offered me Harry Potter, but they were, well, what do you think about Harry Potter and this? And I was like, oh, no, 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 I can't. That's how Wes Ball got Maze Runner. He came, he was pitching his movie. He did that short. And they're like, have you read the Maze Runner? And he's like, I'll read it. And he read it that night, like the whole book. And then the next day. He's like, I mean, I guess this is how I would make it. And they're like, done. Your movie's like on hold. Let's do this. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so, but yeah, it's crazy how how that stuff comes up, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that 
you're, you just, you know, you do what you do and then life does what it does. Mm -hmm. And like, I could never have predicted my career. Like, and there's so much stuff that is so out of your control and there's so many other people making decisions on your behalf (laughs) that, you know, there's, there's all these opportunities that come up that, you know, that can go one way or another. Um, so a lot of it is just, you know, luck or, or like working hard and being in the right place because you're willing to do four extra meetings that no one else is willing to do or whatever. But I guess we were, Matt and I were talking about this yesterday about like this lottery ticket idea, you know, of like, oh, you got the lottery tickets. You got to do, you got into the system and you got to do these giant movies, but then you probably don't look at it as a lottery ticket. You look at it as like you bought like a hundred lottery tickets and finally, right? Yeah, a thousand lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah, a thousand. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. did you make any bad shorts before you made this award-winning short? No, I, well, I'd only made two. I only, the difference for me was, um, as, as opposed to maybe other people was I was going for like truly, uh, like I, I would say to people, like, I want to take such big steps. I know I'm going to like blow a hamstring, you know, like I was like going from, uh, a $12,000 short film and I put everything I had like it was like hyper focused like like you I'm, weren't afraid to risk everything is what it sounds like uh, no I was literally risking everything all the time so I was literally going all in like all you weren't in. hedging bets or saying like oh I, well this is too expensive no, because Let's do remember a small I was saying like I had no money or all that like if I failed then I'm totally screwed so I can't fail, <laughs> you know, like I wasn't like willing to like risk it all in the sense of like, well, who knows if this is going to work? It's like, no, this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Like this has to work, you know, or I'm done and I've got nothing, you know, and I got no, nowhere to go and nothing to do and no money. And, you know, so I was kind of just pushing all in on everything. So I, I didn't make a bunch of stuff that, that no one saw or didn't really work. I made little things on my own with a video camera just to like kind of test ideas. Um, and I used to draw all the time and paint all the time. And like, I was always a visual person. So I'd be always making notes and ideas and like shot ideas and stuff like that. And would that. you like pitch stuff to people and see how they reacted? Like, were you kind of testing out stories no, and things like that? No, but I used to just be the, I was the friend who would tell everybody stories all the time. Like, you know, I was also like, it, like friends of mine from when I was really little, like living in, in uh, Newfoundland, when we were kids, we used to... <laughs> We used to play guns. This is what we called it, play guns. And I used to live... I didn't actually grow up in a small town. I grew up on a highway outside of a small town. So I like... It was just forest, you know, around me. And my friends That's used why to, you have such a keen eye for was, forests. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, guys, don't screw with my forests, man. I know I know my shit. Um, they used to like ride out to my house on their bikes, and we used to like play guns. And later, as I became a filmmaker, my friends used... They reminded me that I used to direct them as kids. Like, I used to <laughs> yeah. tell them where the bad guys were. And I'd be like, you've been hit. And they'd be yeah. like, oh, my God, I'm shot. And I'm like, no, not in your arm, your stomach. Oh, my God. Just a little faster this time. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call them more takes, but it was yeah, like sure. I'd tell them where to go and, like, how fast to go. And right, like, how the fight was kind of blocked. Yeah. yeah, I was, like, blocking out the action or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to be, like, the dungeon master. <laughs> I was a DM, too. Yeah, like, and I, I never really connected it to, like, a, a world building until, like, 20 years later. But I'm so, dying to know how you got that first directing gig. So you were you were writing, yeah. right? Yeah. You were writing full time. And were you writing like kind of big blockbuster type films? I was, I, yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, uh, first one was animated. And the second one was like comparable to uh, like an Edward Scissorhands. So not like 
full of explosions, but like more of a romantic. Yeah, like exactly. Like a fairy tale, like heightened stuff. Um, the first one was just totally like random. Honestly, the whole thing is bizarre, but I was basically in the producer's office looking at his posters that he'd made. And there was a cats and dogs poster and he pitched me these things, which I didn't like any of the things he pitched me. And I was like, man, like, I don't want to make any of the stuff he's talking about. He was pitching you to write or to direct? Um, I can't, I, I think to direct. He was pitching me ideas he had, like scripts he had. And as I was leaving, I said, if you ever decide to make a sequel for that, call me. And like six months later, he called me. And he just said, I will back you as the filmmaker if you want to do it, period. For Cats and Dogs? Cats and Dogs too. And I was like, really? And he was like, yep. I want you to come in and we'll interview writers and we'll come up with a take. The studio's interested in doing this. And so we brought in like a bunch of writers and I heard all these takes. And the, the best thing about that process was before there was a script, they gave me three or four storyboard artists, two concept artists, and they gave me a room in Warner Brothers and I could just come up with visual sequences. And the visual sequences were they just kept the studio kept saying well he's elevating everything that we're seeing is better than what we pictured you know Mm -hmm. the thing i wasn't good at was harnessing the script to do that and i was too nice i wasn't pushing like this is what it has to be it has to be this you know i was kind of like trying to like you were so grateful that you had the job i couldn't believe i had the job you know so i i definitely made this mistake of trying to like appease everybody and in a way i just didn't i didn't really appease myself Mm -hmm. And I actually came out of that process feeling very grateful. You know, a lot of people said, like, why would you do this? Why would you make Cats and Dogs 2 as your first movie? And they don't realize, like, I have no money. I'm like, I'm... <laughs> it's I'm, a studio I'm, film. Though. Sure. I'm also 24 and broke and poor and, like, living in a friend's spare room in West Hollywood with my then-girlfriend at the time... I can't afford to do anything. Like, I don't have hobbies because I have no money. Like, I'm, like, drawing all day and, like, So it wasn't because you love dogs? Well, I do love dogs, and I had a cat, but, you know, it was like, no, man, like, I'm a filmmaker, and no one's giving me a shot to be a filmmaker, and they're giving me a shot to be a filmmaker, and I'm young, and I'm, like, how could I say no to this? Well, and also I imagine the VFX in that movie really set you up for the rest of your career. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you do a ton of VFX driven movies as we've been talking about. So it's like there's a that's a short list of people who can really handle that sort of workload. Yeah. I mean, people say that to me now. They're like, you you know, you're on a very short there's a very short list of filmmakers that can handle what you do well. Yeah. And um, I actually kind of credit it to animation because I started in animation. Interesting. And so I, I got used to talking to animators and studying conceptually ideas frame by frame. Um, and well, I'm then, curious about that. Like, so how do you, there's no script. How do you come up with ideas of what to do with these cats and dogs? Like in your, in, with your storyboard artist, just like sequences that I thought would be cool and like, stuff like, uh, like what can you give us an example? Um, like how a dog could be out on the street being walked and still communicate with like a secret base. Mm-hmm. And it would be at like a fire hydrant. So he'd be tending to be peeing at a fire hydrant and then he'd actually be like, like talking into a walkie, talking it into yeah, a walkie-talkie, yeah. and then you'd follow it down and see where the base is underground. Like it was just stuff like that. It was very animation-oriented. Um, taking, I kind of studied like what would people expect to see, and then how would I flip all of that? You know, right? Um, 
So yeah, so it kind of like happened. Some of the I think the best stuff probably didn't make it in the movie because then honestly there had to be a plot and all you know like there are all these things that you then had to do that had nothing to do with this one-off sequence. But if I had my time back, I would have stuck to my guns on certain sequences. Right. So you were kind of coming up with set pieces and yeah. then working them backwards into the yeah. script. Yeah. And I and I should have stuck closer to what I came up with. <laughs> Honestly. Wow. So then what was after that journey? Yeah. Cats and Dogs 2. And then, yeah, Journey 2, which, you know. Um, and that was where you met uh, The Rock. Yeah. Right? That's where I met Dwayne. Um, and, and so to fill in the gap here, like. Cats and Dogs 2 did not make a lot of money. It wasn't a success. You know, I remember reading, I mean, this is like so bad. I, I hope critics are, I mean, they write stuff like, you know, your film is like setting back film history 100. <laughs> they, they write this stuff and you're like, really, really, my film is set? Like, sure. you know, they write, Cats and Dogs 2 guys? Yeah, Come they're, on. They're like you literally know. like, you know. Have you seen write, Beverly Hills Chihuahua 2? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, it's just is like a little harsh, yeah, you know? Right. Like, I never expected them to like. I mean, it's a family movie, right? Yeah. Like, the families that go see the movie probably had a great time. And I worked my ass off yeah. to make it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I didn't like just go, ah, yeah, like, uh, cool, yeah, yeah no, no, do a thing with the Chihuahua. Like, I, I was like, I'm trying my best yeah, here. Yeah, right? I love the idea of, like, lazy filmmaking. Like, when people are like, oh, a huge studio movie is lazy. It's like, no. Like, there's thousands well, of people working on this so themselves. hard. They literally just discredited themselves. They just discredited themselves. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. my point was, at, after making Cats and Dogs 2... And feeling kind of pummeled, you know, like I did my best. And I honestly like was at Warner Brothers as like a 25 year old, 24, 25 year old kid. Like what is happening? Like how, the, you know, it was an $80 million movie. I never made, I made two short films. Yeah. It was that $80 million? That is pretty yes. insane. It's, yes. That's and did nobody wild. say like, guys, why are you letting this guy direct this movie? No, because the pr- I was proving them that I could, right? Every step of the way. I mean, I, I was literally crapping myself all the time, you know, because I was like really shy, really nervous, way in over my head. But I would like stand there outside before I would go in and sit in front of 10 executives and the president of Warner Brothers and present show reels for them and concept art and all this stuff. I'd never made a movie before. I never made an indie film. I never made any, I mean, two short films. And I was like making it up as I'm going. Like, right. But you also wrote some movies too. I wrote two scripts. Features, right? Yeah, two feature scripts that never got made. But, and God, but were sold. Absolutely were sold, yep. That is not the same as selling. Sure. No, but a if studio- a studio buys a script, it's it can't be that bad, right? I mean. No, but less you want to talk about the commerce of these two things. One cost them $250,000 and one cost them $80 million. So let's right. just weigh oh, those two things. in terms of how much they're spending. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it has, besides the fact that like, I, I write a script and I give it to an agent and they get it to a producer and that producer sells it. And so what am I doing? I'm sitting home eat, drinking hot chocolate or whatever the fuck I'm doing. You know, like the other one is skinny, nervous kid who's never made anything is standing at Warner Brothers in a screening room with the president of Warner Brothers, the 10 executives and going, uh, excuse me, uh, this is what I want to do. And like, look at my show. Re-. Like you're crapping yourself, right? Cause you're not, you've never done this on any level. So you're sitting there going, oh, my God. So then I, I go through all that. I then get destroyed by the critics. I don't make enough money. And then I feel completely and totally cheated as a filmmaker. I'm like, mm-hmm. I've worked my entire life. I, I'm not like a hack. I, I worked so hard on this movie, and I've not won. 
on any level. No one is impressed by this, right? Like, no, my mom, my parents are like, wow, congratulations, you know? But I'm not saying that to myself. I'm not, no, my friends aren't saying that to me. Well, we would have been impressed. Well, uh, thank you. Um, (laughs) I I wish I knew you back then. It would have been a lot easier. Sure, yeah. Um, But so I go into Journey 2 going like, I'm going to prove that. So how do you get Journey 2? Yeah. So Warner Brothers knew, they were, there's good people at that studio and there have been for a long time. And they knew that I worked hard. They knew that I never, I didn't take a playoff. They, they, they just saw that. It was so clear that it was like I had a bunch of issues on that movie. Some of them are fair. Some of them are not fair. Some of them are me. Some of them are not me. At the end of the day, it's all me. And that's what the, you know, that's what people say. And that's you get right. the good and the bad as a filmmaker. Um, but so I had a good thing. Like they knew that, that I'd worked my ass off for them. And they were proud of the movie. And uh, I got Journey 2. And uh, like, of course, you make cats and dogs too. The last thing you're looking for is another sure. sequel. Right, right. I can't help what I was getting sent, and it wasn't submitted to me. It was just floating like around assignment. through agencies. Yeah, it was floating around through agencies. Oh, interesting. But I knew I read the script and I knew how to do it, and I was like, I know how to do this. Hmm. And like how you were just reading it, and you were visualizing yeah, it while you were reading it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, literally, like, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I know how I would cast this character. I know how I would design this character. And, and you felt like you had a unique take on it. Like, yeah. Well, I thought I had, honestly, I thought I had the right take on it. I don't know if it's unique, but I know what I wanted to do with it. And I then, you know, took my own initiative to go and make a big, huge lookbook. I did story reels on my own. Mm-hmm. I paid for all of it. What's I, a story reel? Um, like previs, but with storyboards. So I'd okay. have a board artist board it, and then I would cut it so it would just dissolve through the boards. So you hired someone? Yeah, I paid. I paid out of pocket. I I found people to do concept art for me. And did you have actors voicing things or? Uh, no, it- I just put text on the bottom. So and then we left it up a little longer so you could just read it. Um, I didn't have a massive budget. Come on. Sure. <laughs> um, but no, there's music and sound effects and other yeah, things. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, and then I did key, the biggest thing was I did key art for all the sequences. So like when I was in the pitch, I could flip through the book uh-huh. and That's really interesting. talk yeah. about the sequences like chronologically. Mm-hmm. And I would design like all of the sets through taking stills from other movies and stuff. And what it allowed me to do is tell them the story of the movie visually. So I'd say like in the opening, you know, when you're in Sean's bedroom, this is how Sean's bedroom will be. And I would, and I talked them through and it. Was and was it like a picture from another movie or did you Photoshop things or cut like... All of it, all of it. Most of it was collages from everything, but n- not necessarily other mo- other movies. I don't like doing that as much. I do it sometimes or did it sometimes, but... The thing that you have to fight against with other movies is that they instantly see the other movie. Right. So Especially you're trying if there's to actors find, in the frame and stuff, right? Yeah, and I never really did that. Except for like with casting, I'd be like, I really want to cast like Michael Caine. I was like, this is how I picture this character, you know? And then at the and then I walk them through the entire movie, show them the kind of story reels. How, that's like a half hour thing? Yeah, could be half hour, half hour, 45. I like to do it as fast as humanly possible because I'm so nervous, basically. <laughs> um and so I, I shoot through the movie, and at the very back it was... Um, I would do it differently now, but I put all my casting stuff at the back so I can get through all the set pieces and everything. Sorry, what would you do differently now? Would you put the cast up top, or...? I would do it just, cr- like, as they were introduced in the story, mm-hmm. I would just introduce them in right. the story. Right, so they can sense. visualize... Yeah, so just they're just Dwayne with you the whole... Okay. You're, you're watching the movie, basically, in stills or whatever. Probably. So how long, how much time and money do you invest in this gamble? Whatever it takes. No, I don't know. I, I Like um, a week of work or like a month of work? Uh, two to three weeks. 
Yeah. And I didn't have a job. <laughs> so right. I was like sure. all the time. And had you done this. that yeah. before on other movies that you didn't get? I did it to sell my scripts. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, I know that I'm like a mediocre writer, but look what it's going to look like. Right. And when you read my description, that's what you're going to see. And so they could visualize the script, you know. Right. That's like Zach Braff. You would write like um, had put songs, like song sure. names before, yeah. like various set pieces in Garden State just to get people like in the mood, right. right, to just like listen to that. I think he sent it with like a CD or yeah, something. Yeah, that's he right. sold a lot of CDs. Yeah. yeah. Um, he put on the soundtrack for the movie basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you got Journey 2. Yeah. And then I had to go through the whole, all the steps of pitching everybody because my first movie didn't make any money. <laughs> and did you get the cat? Was the cast like, I mean, Matt and I have been through attaching cast and it's, you know, it's really hard to prove to like famous people that yeah. they can trust you. Right. Yeah. Well, I'd done all this work to show the studio. So I just did that again. Um, Dwayne specifically on Journey and. You know the thing that got Dwayne on Journey, which it's interesting because it it works a lot with um, like I've never done this again, but it works for me um, as well as it worked for him. Is uh, my now composer Andrew Lockington and I worked on the theme for the movie before mm. we went to him, and so when I went to him, I played the theme, the composed theme, and he loved it, and he was just like and. Like he, he, I remember what he literally was like listening to it and he was nodding his head. He's like, it's a big movie, Brad. And I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, it is, it's a big movie. He's like, yeah, I like it. It's, this is big. Sure. You know, like he didn't realize how big I was really trying to make it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he only does big movies. He only does big movies. And the score was like Indiana Jones. Right. Right. It was like a big, yeah, it was this big flourish. And I had the yeah. advantage Andrew had done the score for the first movie. Mm-hmm. So we had talked through like my references for Mysterious Island are, you know, the stop motion animated Mysterious Island. And so I, we, we went back and like listened to that initial mm-hmm. score. And I had all these influences that I wanted to bring into the movie. And so we had like taken the best parts of that original score. But then um, I'm, uh, what's his name? Oh, Bernard Herman. Is uh, I love that. I feel like kind of the lesson to take from all this is like, like, you know, when I've tried to attach people, we send them the script first and then see if they'll take a meeting. But yeah. I feel like you just were like an onslaught of audio visuals. Like, here's yeah. how it looks. Here's how it looks. Well, they sounds. read, they read how... the script first, but like, you know, Dwayne, Dwayne read, you know, he's told me this story now because like the movie did well and he was very happy with it and everything. But, you know, they got to the part where there were giant bees and they were like, come on. They threw the script down, you know, like we, what the hell is this? And, but then when I got in the room with him and showed him images that I'd created of what it would look like to be on the bees. It was kind of like, Oh, this is like cooler than I thought. Like, I'm sure you, you read that. Like I have so, I don't necessarily, first of all, I barely ever read the action in a script unless I've rewritten it with the writer Mm -hmm. because I'm just going to imagine it how I want to imagine it. And, And that has yielded me really good results because I'm not tied to the written word. Uh-huh. So like in those places, I don't remember what it said about riding bees. It just said some bullshit about riding bees and it was probably cheesy as all hell. And he probably read it and was like, throw this off the plane, you know? Sure, sure. But so then, it's just like bee parts. I remember that Next. script landed on me. <laughs> For me, <laughs> yeah, it's like, fun. yeah, bee flies here. And then, yeah. you know, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll do that, you know? And, and I, but, sorry, that's a tangent, but how do you get inspired to come up with like, a, a bee writing sequence like do you watch other movies and go like this is like a chase sequence and 
No, I I completely try to steer clear of other movies. Um, so okay, so this is a weird thing that like no one would think. Like I never thought I was going to be an action director. I never thought, oh, I'd be good at action. That's a discovery of mine. Like as so I. I'm kind of fortunate that like I fell into I thought I wanted to be like this Tim Burtony, arty mm-hmm. kind of dark guy, and I love because I loved that I like it was like my first big passion as a filmmaker, and then I tried to go make it and it turns out I wasn't that good at it, mm-hmm. but I tried my best, and then I was like man like I just gotta like listen to what I'm good at, and then so I get Journey it's like an adventure movie, and I'm like oh and it turns out I can make this and people enjoy it and it does really well, and in making Journey. And now remember, Cats and Dogs 2 is like, I'm shooting Cats and Dogs. How much can you do action-wise? It's really hard, <laughs> sure. you know? Right, like, yeah. it's, re- it's It's more, that's more of a medium for jokes, I think, mm-hmm. than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not like the lightest human being. I'm not like, hey, you know, zingers all over the place and like fart jokes and stuff. Like, not, and I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that's what would have been great for that thing, right. like to really just shoot live animals. But then when I go and make Journey 2 and I'm like, oh man, like I... I direct, there was no B unit director on Journey 2. Mm-hmm. I directed, I don't even care if there's a credit on that movie. I didn't look because I directed everything on that movie. Well, like, there all, was the B unit, right? Hey, <laughs> dad joke of the day. Yeah, hey. <laughs> um, I, I, I did all the action. I was like, I shot everything. And so yeah. the discovery was, oh man, like I know action. Like I did, it was totally instinctual. Like it wasn't hard. And so you just like close your eyes and picture like how yeah. the bees fly or do you? Yeah, I, I mean, you have to it. get inspired by something, right? I imagine it, and then I draw it. <laughs> I mean, my process with directing actors is to imagine being them and sensing where the camera should be and having an emotional reaction. Like, I try to, like, l- live in their place mm-hmm. in order to understand where the camera should be. And so I guess it's sort of like that. Like, I picture it, and I draw it, and I just go, that would be fucking awesome man if we did this you know and it goes slow motion here or whatever um i just draw it and you know try to just lose myself in it and not and also like as i've gone on as a filmmaker i've completely tried to separate myself from the mechanics of filmmaking i I think it's a terrible thing to to be to figure out like what type of crane would get this shot yeah and i know there's filmmakers that really love that stuff and i'm Mm -hmm. curious about it and i i know cameras well and i know lenses well but in terms of storytelling, what I've learned along the way is to not care about those things so that you can imagine things that you don't know how to do. Mm-hmm. And Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. San Andreas was the big one for yeah. me. I literally, that was the one where I was like, I don't know how we're doing this. Like how insane is that shot that in the building where you come in through the window and there's the earthquake going on? The restaurant. Yeah, and yeah, they go so up to the roof all in one, at least it looked like one shot, you know? It, it was it was two or three but they're long takes mm-hmm. um seam together pieces and i'm talking about everything from up to the roof to collapsing and her waking up and coming out right mm-hmm. when when it collapsed that was one piece then after the collapse is one piece and all the way up to the collapse is one piece so there's really? just two yeah it's just two seams and um well we we rehearsed it for like there's like a, that girl that falls into the fountain you know yeah. Like yeah. just these real kind of random little pieces that seem mm-hmm. like so hard to get perfect, you know? <laughs> yeah, we rehearsed it for a week, five days of rehearsals with the entire stunt team and all those extras rehearsed it. with, And then two days with my A unit camera operator and a steady cam before we even walked onto that set. And do you ever like, does the producer ever come and say like, you know, 
can't you just shoot this in three shots and it would be take us half as many days? To their credit, no. Really? So no, they yeah. are like, you want to do this in a one or then let's so go for killer. it? That was one of my things at the very onset of, that, of saying I want to make the movie. So that, that shot... I wrote that shot and gave it to Carlton, who then really like did a much better job of writing it out. But the reason that I wrote that was because in my initial pitch, I was like, I want to do... Like, when I went in to pitch that movie, I said things this like... This is San Andreas. Yeah, right. San Andreas. I said things like, I don't want to make just gigantic moments. I want to make little moments, too. Because to, to, I'm not from California. And I said, the scariest thing for me about earthquakes is being in an underground parking garage. That was me being like, that's the scariest thing for me. Right. And being There's in so my many car- layers between you and the world. In an earthquake? This sounds like a terrible idea. You know, like, so that was me saying, I want to do these intimate moments. So the whole thing with Dario getting caught in the, in the back of the car was literally me being like, this is an intimate, small moment, but it's going to be played on this epic scale. And that's going to literally be cutting with exteriors, big, wide open exteriors of earthquakes. Right. Where so entire wanted, buildings are falling. Yeah. Down. So I wanted the, all those juxtapositions. And that was one of my things was making intimate moments. Um, the other thing was doing a, I want to experience what it would be like inside of an earthquake and not cut, not mm-hmm. let the audience out of the experience. And so then that's where the restaurant came from. And just a quick technical question. Is anything really shaking when you're shooting that? Everything the but the floor. Yeah, because if people are like, absolutely, everything's in there shaking. So the whole set's stable, but all the tables and the chandeliers are all on on shakers. So mm. everything's moving at the same time, the tables and the chandeliers, but the floor is not moving. Wow, what about the actors? Are they like <laughs> bouncing? Um, no, the camera's steady cam. And is the camera of shake added in post? Uh, yeah, the well, the... So I worked with a guy named Steve Yedlin, was the DP of San Andreas, oh, yeah. and Steve uh, just had a lot of big movies. Yeah, no, he hasn't. San Andreas was his first big movie. Oh, really? Yeah, he his biggest movie before that was Looper. Okay. And oh then, man, I love Looper. Yeah, it's a great movie. So, and he's a really good cinematographer. And his second big movie is Last Jedi. And Steve I feel like is. I've seen his, I feel like I've seen his name a lot, but maybe I maybe small. You movies. watch good movies because he does all yeah. Ryan Johnson's films. Oh yeah. I've so he and Ryan went to school together, and then Jaron, the guy who DP'd Rampage, was my B unit uh, DP on San Andreas because Ryan and mm-hmm. Steve and Jaron all went to school together. And um, but anyway, they're all crazy tech heads, like great, like so. Steve literally built a, a, a program that would like shake the camera on any device we put it on. So if we put it on a crane or put it on a, on a steady cam, it would still have vibrations. He built a head. Oh, so the camera was shaking. The camera was shaking. And then what, what you can't do is high frequency shakes because mm-hmm. it would shake the hell out of the camera and just right. break it. Right. Oh, so like, cause, right. cause earthquakes are super high frequency. So everything you see in the movie, that's like, like kind of a floating shake mm-hmm. is in camera and everything that suddenly vibrates fast is all done in post. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that whole thing was, and you add sh- all the motion blur in post for the high frequency shakes. I don't think you need motion blur for high frequency, but if you did, you would, you would add it. But like, yeah, I don't think it's that high frequency, but I, I think there's probably motion blur for for digital elements. I actually take a, I actually add a lot, a lot of motion blur to things and take a lot of Christmas off of visual effects, even when they say no, this is technically correct, because it doesn't look right to me. Huh. I, I would rather it be slightly, um, slightly what they would call like a, a, a degraded image, not technically perfect. 
I do that 90% of my shots. I mean, what do you, so what do you mean by taking Christmas off of it? Well, like a digital shot, I think they look really hyper crisp and hyper real a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So I ask for more motion blur. Mm-hmm. I ask for blurred pixels. I ask for um, uh, halation in the edges so that when light hits it, you can kind of see like, like room lighting and glow. That's right. very organic, you know, and, and sometimes they'll be like, well, we've already put that in there. I'm like, double it add more <laughs> you know right. like because it doesn't feel real to my eye and it's you know it's makes them a little crazy but i i think it looks good i i mean to me i'm like this is what sells the reality a lot of times um but so yeah so anyway like when i went in and pitched for san andreas there was a bunch of things that i said this is what i want to do this is why i'm attracted to this um and the other one was i think the the death of the daughter was like a big thing for me to me that was like the linchpin of the entire movie and it wasn't really there when i first came on Things like that were just like, this is why I would want to do it, you know? Um, and so they were fully, they, they loved that idea. Are you kidding? Like the guys over at New Line were like, this is awesome. Can you pull this off? <laughs> and I was like, I hope so. Like, I, I feel like I can. In fact, that's the only time while shooting I ever got a call from, I, there's this executive over there I really like named Mike Disco. And he called me on on set the day after, or like two days after I shot it and said, like the day after, because he just watched the dailies and he was like, he calls me. I'm on set shooting the water, the building sinking scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, he calls me on set and it's weird. Like the producer, like the studio is on the phone for you. And I'm like, studio is on the phone. They never call. Like sure. they're yeah, like yeah. very respectful. I, I really love working um, with them and the, how they work is, is great. Because once you start shooting, they just like let you shoot, you know, because they've, You've gone through the process. You've signed off on the script. You've done. Right. For me, I've done my storyboards, my previs, and we've noted all the all homework that stuff. is done. All yeah. the homework's done. You, yeah. I'm like a. I'm not hiding anything from you. Like, let's talk about it because you know you're going to shoot it. They're going to see it. So why are you hiding anything? You know, right. like I'm not trying to push off anything. And how many days does that do you shoot? San Andreas, San Andreas was 72. Um, and yeah, so like the day after I shot the the restaurant. They called and I walk off or I got out of a wetsuit or whatever the hell I was in and like went down and took the call. I was literally like sure. living in a wetsuit yeah, for like yeah. a week oh. on that movie. It was ridiculous. Oh man, just the realities of shooting for 72 days. Like you, you want to punch it. yourself in the face yeah, yeah. after two I'm, weeks. I'm just tired. Did you, did you do five day it. weeks? Yeah, five and six. It's like, yeah, that's gnarly. It's Insane. super gnarly. It's super, people don't really get it. It yeah. is mentally exhausting. You are wiped out. You're, yeah. I was sick for months after San Andreas. Like, I didn't think I was going to get better. I was like... You had, like, sea legs from all the shaking. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he calls, and he's just like... He says to me, uh, man, that shot, the restaurant, it's amazing. And I said, Mike, all the shots I'm doing, I'm trying to make amazing. And he started <laughs> laughing, and he's like, no, I just had to call you. I was like, oh, thanks, man. And th- that's when I knew, like... Honestly, like, you put it out... Of, you have to. You put it out of your head. You're just going to, like, I got to go do it now. You know, like, you... You talk about it. You you tell people about it. You design it. Then you go do it, sure. and no, you're not thinking about it. You're you're in the zone. You're never intimidated by. I think that you're intimidated stuff. by like the reality of pulling it off, but like it's a process. Mm-hmm. You you grind the process down. Like you know, it's that that saying whatever. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's sure. like that type of. You have to have that mentality. That's why I'm saying like on San Andreas, I never thought about how am I going to pull these shots off. I was like, I'm going to design the shots I want to see, and I'm hiring really smart people, and they're going to help me figure out how to do it because that's what I want to do. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever done that. So it was like a big leap for me where mm-hmm. I just literally disengaged from the physical proximities and all the hang-ups of filmmaking. It was just like, 
this is the story I want to tell. How do I tell it and right. get a bunch of people to help? That's incredible, especially considering your first movie is like basically all CG characters. Like to still have to like cats and dogs too. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's mostly real animals with well, um, but with augmentation. Yeah, with augmentation. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I've heard a lot that I that I really appreciate is from the, my cast, mm-hmm. where they say like Carla Gugino on uh, San Andreas had said, "I've worked with so many filmmakers, really big filmmakers, and they are either really visual and technical." Or really good with actors. And she said, you're right in the middle. You do both of those things. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was amazing to hear. And then I heard it again from um, Naomi mm-hmm. uh, Harris on, on Rampage. Because, you know, she's like a pretty heavy hitting actor. Like sure. She does her homework. I mean, I was very... Uh, on Rampage, like, the cast is awesome. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I mean, like everybody came super ready to go. And obviously I have a great relationship with Dwayne and sure. everyone was like really dialed in. And I think Dwayne knows, cause I've worked with him a bunch about how detailed and prepared I am and well, I know what I want. And, you know, and I'm also flexible. Like we work together. Like I'm, I'm there to work with the cast, like to, cause they, you know, when I worked with Michael Caine on journey Two, he blew me. Like there were things that I was like single word lines mm-hmm. and, or two word lines. And I'd be like, I, I thought I pictured it cool and then he did it and I was like, oh my God, like this is amazing. You know, like right. literally you're like inside, you're like giddy. You're like turning around sure. looking at people going, oh my God. Like when Carla broke down crying because of her daughter in San Andreas, like I couldn't look at the monitors because it was, right. I felt like I was spying on someone having a personal moment. I just had to like look away because I was like, this is wrong. You're not supposed to look at people when they have these sure, moments, sure. you know, like <laughs> I, I feel like this is not okay. But working with people of such a high level of acting and coming from a background where I have no acting experience. I, I, I don't know what, it, I don't know what actors go through. Um, and having worked up to the place where now, like having directed Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland and, you know, Jason Momoa and, and Dwayne and these people and having them say back to me really positive things about my direction with them mm-hmm is super rewarding for me because it was the thing I was really most intimidated by when I started. Um, and it, it, I don't know what other filmmakers go through. So to hear them be like, you know, most filmmakers are either these visual guys who know all the technical stuff or actor people. And, and for someone to say, you do both of those things really well is it's awesome to hear that, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. Well, hey guys, we are going to stop our interview with Brad right there. We got so much good stuff that we decided to stretch this out into two episodes. So, You lucky dogs, you. So we heard a lot about San Andreas. Uh, we're going to hear a lot more about Brad's origin story, how he pitches movies, and, uh, and how he works with Netflix on Frontier. So tune in next time for more of that. Um, and then also please follow us on Twitter. We're at Just Shoot It Pod. And I am at Smitey Pileg. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. Our music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And this episode was edited by Christopher Robert Gray. Thanks again for tuning in. Catch the next one. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.